Welcome to another edition of the official Jets podcast powered by Amazon Web Services. Today's episode, EA and I catch up with Matt Miller of Bleach Report, their lead draft expert and draft coverage really ramping up here. EA, what did you think about the interview with Matt Miller? What stood out to you before we dive into it here? Uh, so many things. Uh, I thought it was interesting, his take on the running backs, because sure, we've been focused on wide receivers and tackles and cornerbacks and edges, and rightfully so, because those are clear Jets' needs. But you also have to think about positions where you need increased depth. And Le'Veon Bell, the star running back, still one of the better players in the league, will be back next year. And I think um, I'm looking forward to seeing him play behind a revamped offensive line, Greens. But listen, you got Bilal Powell and Ty Montgomery, unrestricted free agents. So who are the guys going to be lining up behind him? And Matt, during his evaluations, the further he went along and looked at tape and talked to people throughout the league is that there are a lot of guys with valuable skill sets who would provide teams with great complementary options out of the backfield. Matt Miller talked about a couple of them, one that he pegged to the Jets in his seven-round mock draft. Without further ado, here's the one-on-one with Matt Miller. First things first, how are you health-wise, and how is this whole pandemic changed, if at all, your day-to-day basis at this time of year? Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, as I've told you before, I live in the middle of nowhere, uh, which is probably the first time in my life I'm very fortunate to live in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking this as seriously as everyone else, you know, limiting my contact with other people, not, you know, sitting at the bar every night, drinking beers, talking to my friends, you know, being very mindful of who I come in contact with, begging my parents to stay home. Like what a switch now, you know, trying to tell mom and dad to stay home and use the senior citizen hours at the grocery store. But no, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I live in an area where we thankfully haven't seen the numbers rise as of yet, but Definitely keeping everyone up there. You guys know I've, I've spent a lot of time in New York over the last decade working for Bleacher Report. Have a lot of friends up there, including yourselves and, and people in that building. So definitely wishing the best for everybody up in the New York area. And, and Matt, so uh, for people who don't know, where in the Midwest are you at? Man, I'm in Joplin, Missouri. So if you, um, I tell people, if you watch Ozark and Tiger King on Netflix, I'm right in the middle. <laughs> yes. like, I'm right in the middle of those two shows. And it's like, <laughs> I, that's where I live. Those are the people I interact with every day. Tiger King and Jason Bateman. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in a, a community of like 150,000 people, you know, and, and we have yet to see Missouri as a state, uh, you know, do the, the statewide shutdown. But, but I do live in an area where the city leaders have, have you know, stepped in a couple of weeks ago and, and shut things down. And honestly, you know, Bleacher Report did very early. They told us, mm. you know, it, it feels like it was four months ago at this point, it was probably three weeks, you know, that they didn't want us traveling, they wanted us to take this seriously. And and so, again, very fortunate to have, you know, to be surrounded by smart people who are making good decisions. You have a lot okay. of contacts throughout the National Football League. How is this impacting mm-hmm. the scouting process here in April? We're three, three weeks away from the 2020 NFL draft, and this will be the most unprecedented draft I can remember. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I've talked to players about that. Even like, you know, you guys are going through something that no one's ever gone through before. So, you know, try to be mindful of that. When you talk to scouts, agents, coaches, general managers, it's funny because you'll get differing opinions. I've talked to some guys who, 
You know, they're enjoying the time with their family that they normally wouldn't get this time of year. You know, you're actually being a home instead of at the facility 24 seven. So there's, there's a silver lining to it. Uh, other guys are excited because I, I have one scout tell me we're actually going to draft football players, not mm-hmm. track stars this year, because the tape that the guys put on, on the field for three or four years is what you're going to have to rely on instead of the private workouts, the pro days, you know, this year we actually saw, uh, I believe a record number of players not perform at the combine because the schedule change. So it's funny. That was such a topic a month ago. Like no one's working out at the combine now because there aren't private workouts, there aren't pro days. There are a lot of players where you don't have a full athletic profile on T Higgins from Clemson, right? Everyone expected this guy to be a first rounder. He doesn't work out at the combine and his pro day was one of the last ones before uh, everything was shut down by the national football league. And so the number that's out there on him is a four, five, six in the 40 yard dash, which isn't terrible, but it's not great. He doesn't have a chance to do better than that. There are other players who, you know, day three guys or small school players. This is really going to affect one that stands out to me. Tyler Johnson from Minnesota, incredibly productive for, for two years for the Gophers at wide receiver, but opted out of the shrine game and then opted not to run or do agilities at the, at the combine. So now you have a player that you haven't seen him do any athletic testing, didn't get a pro day and can't do private workouts. Guys like that are, are unfortunately going to see a slide because of this. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because just keeping the receiver thing, just a couple things, a couple guys stand out to me when you think of like Brian Edwards didn't play in the senior bowl. Then he broke yeah. his foot in training van Jefferson. But one, one guy that, I wanted to ask you about maybe just your evaluation and how this process has affected him. What about somebody at the tackle spot, like Prince Tegawanogo, who's an intriguing prospect and has a great story, but not being able to participate in a lot of these things, like where is his evaluation at now? And just what kind of football player do you think he is? Yeah. You almost have to put like an incomplete grade on some of these guys, which is not a good thing. That's not where you want to be. So like you said, uh, amazing story. I know that initially they were very excited to get him at the senior bowl. And so I think the injury questions are for a player like Prince, uh, that's going to hurt. So if you're talking about maybe he would have been like a round two or round three player to begin with, if you're not comfortable with the medicals and you weren't able to see a workout, that's when players I think are going to see a slide. Um, You know, Lucas Nying from TCU is another offensive tackle who's kind of in a similar boat where you have a history of some hip issues and the fact that he wasn't able to participate in the pre-draft process before things were shut down. It just, it leaves you wanting more information and you're almost having to rely on third party sources when it comes to medicals or outdated information, you know, a year end physical or guys who are at the senior bowl, you're hoping they at least went through a physical process there so that you can get those medical records, but uh, scouts and, and general manager are definitely scrambling. And so for those two offensive tackles, particularly they're players that I like. I don't have either ranked in my top eight tackles right now because of just the question marks when it comes to where they're at from a health perspective. We're certainly going to talk more about the tackles and receivers offensively. Also, the cornerbacks and the edges defensively because those are four definite Jets needs. But, hey, listen, you're doing a lot of film work. You just did your seven-round mock draft that probably took you a couple years to finish. I don't know how how you're able to complete those. but one thing that you've been stressing, it's kind of been under the radar, is the depth of this running back group. 
Yeah, it is. It's a good group, EA. And I, I think it's it's the difference between living on Twitter and living in a world where you talk to NFL decision makers because you'll you'll see, you know, folks on Twitter either love or hate a class. Then you talk to people around the league. And and I, I put a starting grade on seven players and then I put a, a high level contributor grade on five more. Mm-hmm. So you're at 12 to 13 running backs that I believe as rookies could be high level contributors. So it is a very good class. You know, DeAndre Swift from Georgia at the top is my number one running back. Then you have Jonathan Taylor from Wisconsin, who over 6,000 rushing yards, you know, and 4-4 four, four speed. Uh, Clyde Edwards, Alaire, and J.K. Dobbins, two players that we saw, you know, carry teams to the postseason and have big performances there. I'm still a believer in Cam Akers coming out of Florida State. I think he could be a starter in the NFL. I guarantee you he will never run behind a worse offensive line than he did at college. Zach Moss at Utah, you know, he's a punishing, powerful guy. Keyshawn Vaughn at Vanderbilt, excellent receiver out of the backfield with some big play speed. So there are, are good running backs. And, and whether the Jets value that early with Le'Veon Bell coming back or not, it's still a good year to get a complimentary back or someone that you believe could be, a, you know, down the road could become a starter. You know, I'm very glad you mentioned that because I've seen previous mock drafts of yours where you had Cam Akers to the Jets in the third round. So what about Akers' game do you think could complement Le'Veon Bell well? And not only that, but in your seven-round mock draft that EA mentioned, you had them taking a running back in the sixth round in Eno Benjamin out of Arizona State. Yeah, something those guys have in common is that they're both very good receivers out of the backfield. And I think Cam Akers, in a lot of ways, is a poor man's Le'Veon Bell. You you want that outside zone runner who's going to be exceptional you know, on wheel routes, getting out to the flats, being a safety valve for the quarterback in the passing game. I love that about Cam Akers. And I think had he been at an LSU or Ohio State or Alabama, we would be talking much more about his production. You know, unfortunately... I, I of the running backs I've studied, no one had a worse offensive line than he did in 2018 and 2019. So with acres, you're getting a really nice blend of vision, contact balance and power with enough runaway speed where you get him on the outside, get him on the corner. Uh, he has that ability to make daylight runs where he's going to get, he's going to get to the open field and he's going to be able to get to the end zone. And with, you know, Benjamin, you know, he is a smaller guy. Who's not someone I would project to be a featured back. That's going to you know be your 20 touch carry guy, but as a compliment to someone like Le'Veon Bell, Eno is going to give you a little bit more of a spark, a little bit more flash, but also just what he could bring to the table as a pass catcher. He's got to get better in pass protection. I think that's the biggest issue with Eno Benjamin. We saw the production, especially as a receiver in 2019, was f- fantastic. But he is not ready right now to to stack up against blitzers in the NFL and be able to protect the Sam Darnold. So he's a little bit of a developmental guy, but but does have some tools that I really like. <laughs> Do you think something's changing in the National Football League? For years, we talk about the left tackles being the emphasis and then below them, the right tackles, where this year, when we think about these big four prospects who are almost assuredly going to all go in the first round, there's a couple of guys who they are projecting are going to be right tackles in 2020 and contribute right away. Well, and two of those guys played right tackle. Tristan Wirfs at Iowa was a right tackle. Jedrick Wills at Alabama was a right tackle. Now they're both very athletic and I think could make that transition. Uh, but something you even see with Josh Jones out of Houston at the Senior Bowl, we saw him work a lot at right tackle. So e, I do think there's something to that of you just want to get your five best linemen on the field these days because you have to worry about Von Miller coming off the right edge. You have to worry about Khalil Mack. You have to worry about the San Francisco 49ers rolling out Nick Bosa and D Ford. You have to worry about the Los Angeles chargers with Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa. So you can't, you, you can't handicap yourself like you used to where, okay, we have to stop Lawrence Taylor and Derek Thomas. We'll just put, we have a good left tackle. It doesn't really matter what we do 
on the right side. But I think you can look at Lane Johnson and Philadelphia, Mitchell Schwartz and Kansas City as guys who are, I mean, they're their best linemen on their roster and they're very, very valuable in that spot. So as defenses get, you know, more balanced in their pass rush, I think having a right tackle who, you know, isn't a scrub, you know, a guy who is an athlete and can stop the good pass pass rushers that you see is incredibly important because this isn't rocket science, right? If you have a bad right tackle, guess where I'm putting my best pass rusher, you know, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to put, put my best guy over there. And, and especially, you know, uh, in the AFC East, we've seen the Dolphins spend a lot of money on pass rushers the Patriots or the Patriots. They're always going to be able to be able to get after the quarterback and the bills have some young guys there. So you have to be able to be left and right-handed to, to protect your quarterback. You know, Jedrick Wills, I, I believe, I don't know if it's changed since, but last time I checked in with you, he was your first offensive tackle, your highest yeah. graded guy. You recently had him on your podcast, stick to football, just a couple of things. One, what's what's something that you kind of took away from that interview? Like what's something fans don't know about him? And do you think a team like the Browns, who are one pick ahead of the Jets, they're also likely to address tackle, whether that's at 10 or later on in the draft to be determined. But if they are at 10 and they just signed Jack Conklin, do you think that would almost prohibit them from taking somebody like Jedrick Wills or Tristan Wirfs, who's more of a projection on the left side as opposed to Makai Becton or Andrew Thomas. Yeah, I, they're a tough team to figure out. The Cleveland Browns are because you they don't ever have anyone there long enough for us to study the trends. Right. So it's, it's really hard to say, OK, this is what they like in a player. This is what they're looking for. That's definitely an interesting part of this. They need a left tackle. They don't need someone who, you know, Jack Conklin's going to start a right tackle and be a high level player there. So I think with the with the Browns specifically, that could lean you more towards a Mackay Becton. I, I think one thing that I learned talking to Jedrick Wills, and I, I've talked to Tristan Wirfs, not on my podcast, but I, I've talked to him separately. Both guys are are two fantastic athletes and not just 40 mm-hmm. yard speed. You know, they're very good short area agility, quickness. They both have good length. And so all the, the boxes that you would traditionally check for a guy to play left tackle, they both hit that. And we asked Jedrick Wills, hey, if Tua Tungavailoa had been right-handed, would you have played left tackle? And he really said, you know, I'm I'm comfortable playing wherever. That's where they asked me to play. Alex Leatherwood, Alabama's left tackle, is a pretty good player in his own right. But I've seen Wirfs and Wills play enough to feel pretty confident they could play on the left side, whether that's in Cleveland or in New York or, you know, the Arizona Cardinals, whoever ends up drafting one of those guys in the top 10 or 11 picks. If you're the Jets at 11, you have to trust your board, and that's what Joe Douglas is going to do. There's no doubt about that. Um, but you – when you're ranking these guys uh, and we're a couple of weeks away and the Matt Miller big board, do you have those four tackles really close together? Because there is a need for the jets. I always tell greens. Yes. You go best player available, but need breaks the tie. And yeah. also where do you see the drop off where you say, well, maybe, yeah, I want to protect Sam Darnold, but I got to give him a playmaker too. And I love one of these receivers. No, you're right, man. I always say that best player available is actually one of the biggest lies in the NFL because <laughs> you're going to put your needs at the top, right? So it's the best available out of need. It's it's amazing that every general manager still rolls that out. Like, oh yeah, he was the best player on our board. He, most cases, it was the best player out of need. So I, I do think that, you know, with the Jets, um, I have those tackles ranked very closely together. I have Jedrick Wills first, Tristan Wirfs second, Makai Becton third, and then Andrew Thomas fourth. And, and not far behind them, I have Josh Jones from Houston and Austin Jackson from USC. So I do expect six tackles to be drafted in the first round this year. With the Jets, I feel like at 11, they're in a really good position to not have to use those two second round picks to trade up and get a tackle 
Um, the best thing for the New York Jets would be for quarterbacks to go early. Yep. You want four quarterbacks going in the top tens because that's going to push more good offensive tackles down uh, to where you guys are drafting at 11. So I, I think, again, they're in a good spot where I don't feel like this is a year where we're going to see another defender in the first round, even though there's some good players out there at, at edge rusher and at corner. If the one of the tackles isn't there, if you don't like the tackles, that just means more receivers are available. And in most mock drafts that I do right now, all the receivers are still on the board at 11 because we're not expecting, you know, the Cardinals trade for Nuke Hopkins. They don't need a receiver anymore. We're not expecting the Carolina Panthers to take one. We're not really expecting the Jacksonville Jaguars to take one. So the Jets end up in a position where you might be looking at the second best offensive tackle and the best wide receiver, mm. which that's where it comes down to what you were talking about. EA It's the best player at a position of need. And, and in my opinion, and I believe Joe Douglas feels this way too. A left tackle is a lot more important than a wide receiver. And they're a lot harder to find the, the best offensive tackles in the NFL right now. were first round picks. So it's really a position where you have to spend that premium pick at wide receiver. We've all called this a historic receiver class. There's going to be good players to be had in the 40s when the Jets come back on the clock. Well, to your point right there, who do you like at 48 when the Jets are back on the clock? Obviously, it depends to everybody who potentially like the Minnesota Vikings take to replace Stephon Diggs. Right. And but who's a guy that, you know, unrelated to whether you think they'll be there or not, who do you like more than others? Yeah, you know, I actually I'm a fan of Denzel Mims from Baylor. He's incredibly raw, but I mean, he's athletic as heck and he's big and he can run. So I like Denzel Mims. I still really like Michael Pittman from USC. So just get that Trojan connection going with Sam Darnold. I watched this guy. It was the night before the uh, Wisconsin Michigan game. I was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm at a, a, a bar with my guys from stick to football and I'm watching Michael Pittman destroy Utah and that Utah defense is going to have like eight players drafted and Pittman's just going off and he's not the fastest guy, but in some ways reminds me of Michael Thomas with how physical he is in his route running that he creates separation just by being physical and by being precise with his route. So I'm a fan of Michael Pittman. If he's there at 48, I would be jumping all over that because I, I do think, you know, we're going to see a, a tier of receivers where it's Michael Pittman and then some smaller guys like a Jalen Rager from TCU, KJ Hamler from Penn State, who I had the Jets taking in my latest mock draft. Um, the receivers that we expect to be there in round two, there's not a lot of like big physical players. And Pittman would give Sam Darnold someone that that is going to box out. He's going to be physical, you know, on breaking routes on slants. He's going to post up in the red zone. And we've seen him have production against NFL caliber corners, I mean, not just that Utah game, a lot of the what he did in, in the Pac-12 over the last two years. And NFL draft scout Matt Miller bringing the information as always. Okay, let me ask you about cornerback. We know Akuda. Ohio State, he could go in the top five. He might be a likely number three selection if the Lions stay there. Who else should we be paying attention to down the line, whether that's round one or early in round two? Because the Jets still do have a need on the outside. They brought back Brian Poole, key acquisition. Uh, They bring in Pierre Desir. We don't know who's going to start opposite uh, Desir. Now, what do you see in terms of this draft and maybe rounds two, rounds three, or even late one? Yeah, you know, this corner class is interesting because there's Jeff Okuda, who's going to be, like you said, a top five pick. Then there's CJ Henderson, who's probably going to be a top 
20 picks, somewhere between nine and, and 17 is probably his floor. After that, there's a tier of corners that are very hard to separate. Uh, it, Jeff Gladney from TCU, 5'10", but incredibly sticky at the line of scrimmage. There's big guys like Christian Fulton from LSU, Jalen Johnson from Utah, A.J. Terrell from Clemson, guys who we saw in the college football playoff, a, a couple of those. So then you get into the, these guys are all six foot, six foot one, six foot two, can play on the outside. They're all 200 pounds. Uh, and then after that, I think there's another tier of players that are, are, you know, Trevon Diggs would probably be in that, that tier with those other big guys. But, you know, then there's a break to the next group and there's a lot more question marks with someone like uh, Noah Igbenogany from Auburn, who's probably going to go around pick 50. Um, so it's, it's a good corner class in the top, I think 64. After that, I see a pretty significant drop off. After that, you're getting into guys like a Bryce Hall from Virginia, who you know had uh, two lower leg breaks this this past season, one injury, but two broken bones. Gigantic question mark right now because you're not able to bring him in to Florham Park and run him through the you know all the physicals that you want to do and get the X-rays and the MRIs. Can't do that. So I think someone like Bryce Hall, normally you would say it's a tremendous value in round three. Right now, there would be a little more uncertainty around a player like that. So I'm with you. I think outside corner is a big need. If you don't go there in round two, uh, I would probably hang my hat on someone like Stanford Samuels from Florida State in round three. Cameron Dantzler from Mississippi State would be another player that I, I believe they have the size to hold up on the outside in a Greg Williams defense. Matt, before we let you go, just real quick, the Jets have 11, 48, 68, and 79. In Matt Miller's ideal scenario, how does that board fall out for the Jets' first four picks? Yeah, ideal at 11, you're getting Jedrick Wills because he is my top tackle. I believe he would be that that left tackle to protect Sam Darnold for the, the, the next 10 years. I think in the second round with those two picks, ideally, you're getting a, a receiver like a Michael Pittman, someone who can be your ex receiver. He could be your number one guy, your go to. Uh, I place a big emphasis on edge rusher in this defense, a little bit over corner even. So I would be looking at edge rusher, someone like Darrell Taylor from Tennessee that has quickness, can stand up and rush off the edge, can put his hand in the dirt but is really going to win with that first step ability. And then I would look at corner uh, with that. I believe pick 79, that fourth pick where you could get someone like a a camera dancer from Mississippi state, who I don't believe he gave up a touchdown the last three years in the sec. And definitely has the size to hold up on the edge. Matt, thanks so much for joining us and stay safe out there. Likewise, you guys stay safe and, and good luck with this draft. Always great to hear from Matt Miller. You can follow him on Twitter, like we said, at NFL Draft Scout. EA, we mentioned it in the interview here and there that Matt Miller had a seven-round mock draft and just real quick wanted to get your take on it. At least the first three rounds, he has the Jets going. Mekhi Becton at 11, Penn State wide receiver K.J. Hamler in the second round, Michigan edge Josh Uche, and then Florida State cornerback Stanford Samuel the third tackle receiver edge then cornerback those are the four needs that we've been talking about so on paper that makes sense Becton Greens might have the highest ceiling of any offensive alignment in this draft uh he seems like a Joe Douglas type player tenacious a guy who's tough, he wants to get after you, smack you in the face, 364 pounds, uh, played the left tackle most recently. I wonder what he projects uh, on the Jets draft board in terms of which side they'd like him to play on. But uh, you know, just listening to Becton and hearing people talk about him, he seems like a Douglas type, he loves football, loves getting after you, wants to get dirty, and he wants to impose his will on you. 
KJ Hamler, somebody that didn't run at the combine, but had he, he probably a sub four, four guy. So he's got speed for days. He's, he's a little light and short. He weighed in at five, nine, one seventy eight. I think he's really like a gadget player. I think he can line up out wide. Obviously I don't think he's winning 50, 50 balls, but I think he might be one of those guys where his game is he gets open. And once he has the ball in his hands, he can take a three yard slant and take it the distance or take a 15 yard in and get 20 yards after the catch. KJ Hamler could be that guy. However, I don't think he's that guy where Sam Darnold could just throw it up and hope for the best. He's not that type of player, but he's really electric with the ball in his hand. So I think it'll be interesting just to see the profile of receiver that Joe Douglas and Adam Gase and Sean Jefferson and Heinz Ward are looking for. That was another edition of the official Jets podcast powered by Amazon Web Services. EA, thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks, buddy.